Welcome to the Curvebeam AI Cast, bringing you the future of orthopedics and bone health. Welcome to Curvebeam AI Cast. I'm your host, Vinti Singh, Director of Marketing here at Curvebeam AI. And today I am thrilled to be joined by Nancy Davis, a radiologic technologist who is certified in X ray, MRI, and CT, and currently serves as the Director of Accreditation for CT at the Intersocietal Accreditation Commission. Now, anyone who has worked on the operational side of an orthopedic practice that has advanced diagnostic imaging, you know how important it is to have your quality policies and procedures in place. And uh, the accreditation process is key to ensuring um, that you are in full compliance and to talk a little bit more about all the different aspects of accreditation, um, Nancy is going to answer um, a lot of questions. So I'm excited to dive right in. Nancy, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Vinti. I'm so happy to be here with you today and talk to you about accreditation. Um, it's always nice working with Curve Beam and you and your staff. Awesome. Well, well, let's dive right into the conversation. So, Nancy, to get us started here, um, can you tell us a little bit more about your uh, background as a technologist? What was your career in clinical medicine? And then how and why did you transition over to the accreditation side and, and join IAC? Sure, I'd be happy to, Vinti. Uh before coming to the IAC, I worked in patient care, direct patient care for about 30 years. And during that time, I worked in several different types of facilities. Uh, I worked in anything from a level one trauma center to a privately owned radiology practice. And during that time, I also worked in CT and MRI. Uh, my last role prior to uh, coming to the IEC full-time was an imaging center manager where I managed radiology practice, and I was also the compliance officer for that facility. And during that time, two things were happening. Number one, for about 10 years, I did work uh, an ancillary role for the IEC where I did case review as a clinical specialist, and I also did site auditing for them. So I became very interested in the IAC's mission and their accreditation process. And as a compliance officer, I also really realized my passion for compliance and how important it is to make sure facilities, they're doing the right thing and they are abiding by all of the, the mandates that the government and other insurance companies um, have in place. Excellent. So. Compliance, it, it really can be an area um, that one can become passionate about because when you realize that compliance is the key to a successful organization, it really is. I can completely understand um, where that could evolve into a passion area. So, uh, if we take just a little bit of a step back for our listeners who might not be as familiar with accreditation and accrediting bodies, could you describe what IAC is and what exactly it does? Sure. So the IAC is a nonprofit organization. Um, the IAC has been in the 
accreditation space for about uh, 30 years. Uh, we did start out with other programs than CT and over time evolved as needs arose for different modalities, CT, MR, nuclear medicine. Um, and our organization works with facilities to evaluate their policies and procedures along with their staff credentials and study quality to ensure that patients are receiving the best radiology care possible. Our, uh, our mission is statement is improving healthcare through accreditation. And that really is what we strive to do. And can you explain um, from a CMS perspective, why advanced diagnostic imaging modalities like MRI or like CT that are in an outpatient setting, why do they need to be accredited? From a CMS uh, standpoint, our accreditation for an imaging center uh, all satisfies uh, the MIPA law, or the MIPA mandate, which was established in 2008. And this law states that in order for a facility to bill CMS insurance programs, they have to have this accreditation. So the other side of that is, it seems like what the government that's in motion, most other providers will set in motion. So as a result of CMS's mandate, what has evolved is that all major insurance carriers do require that accreditation as well. So essentially to be able to collect reimbursement for any scans done in an outpatient facility, it is essentially a requirement to be accredited. Correct. Yes. Yes. Well, thanks for breaking that down for us. Yeah. Um, can you provide us a basic overview for what is assessed in the practice and with the modality specifically for advanced diagnostic imaging modality accreditation? Sure, I'd be happy to. So for CT, there's several areas that we are assess. Uh, and the main areas that we do assess would be medical and technical staff credentials. We also look at safety policies and procedures. For example, your pregnancy screening, policy and your radiation safety policy. We also look at uh, quality assurance uh, practices, including physicist surveys and routine quality control scans. And finally, we look at image and report quality. Excellent. Um, and uh, we actually recently ran into each other at the uh, American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society meeting that was in Quebec in uh, mid-September. Um, and IAC actually had an exhibit uh, at that meeting. Can you share with our listeners why uh, IAC had a presence at that meeting? I sure can. It was a great meeting too, wasn't it? And exciting for you guys at uh, Curve Beam AI, big, big meeting. Um, I had yeah. the pleasure of being at the conference because the AOFAS is the IAC C2 Board of Directors newest sponsoring society. Um, so I was there uh, representing the IAC uh, in support of, of the uh, AOFAS. I was also present as a result of our abstract re, uh, regarding IAC accreditation and patient safety uh, being chosen for audio presentation at the meeting. So it was kind of a dual, uh, dual uh, reason to be there. Um, and it was really exciting to be at an orthopedic 
conference and learn about all the legislation and just the grassroots effort uh, to improve uh, orthopedics using using CT scanning. I, I didn't realize IAC had an, an abstract at AOFS. Yes. Can you give us a summary of, of what was researched and what the results were? Sure. So what we did was we looked at the facilities that we have accredited that are cone beam, and it was specifically cone beam uh, scanners that are in the orthopedic space. And we looked at the findings from our application evaluations. So when we do, not only do we accredit and evaluate what our facilities send us, we also gather data so that we can see trends and also areas that we can better support our facilities. So this particular, uh, this particular study looked at the different areas that we found uh, insufficiencies in uh, during the application process. Mm -hmm. So what we were able to prove is we are definitely improving patient care through accreditation because what happens if you do have some areas that need some extra support or improvement, we send you documentation for that and then we ask you to make the improvements and uh, I myself would work with the facility if they are uncertain of what they need or what they need to improve, and then they're able to improve their practices. Were, were there some common areas like trends that you found where, where many practices could use improvement? Uh, mostly policies and procedures, and that's just brushing up on them. Um, not many image quality issues, which is a good thing. <laughs> So, yes. So just getting your, your policies and your documentation in line, uh, that's yes. what a lot of practices could use yes. a little extra focus. That's, that's and, good to know. And honestly, in the orthopedic space, I think it mainly comes from orthopedic doctors. They're not radiologists. Mm -hmm. And so some of the things that they need to have in place, they just aren't familiar with because that wasn't their area of study. They just need some support in getting everything in line. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and along those lines, I do have some more questions related to that. But before we switch to that topic, I, I also want to make sure we talk about, um, you said the AOFAS is now a sponsoring society for the IAC. Can you explain uh, what a sponsoring society does for IAC? How many sponsoring societies do you have currently? Uh, give us a little bit of an overview. Sure. So at present, we have 13 sponsoring societies and one member at large that make up our board of directors. And within those sponsoring societies and member of, at large, we have 21 IAC board members on the board of directors. Uh, it's interesting because sponsoring societies, to me, it's sort of a misnomer because people think, oh, they're sponsoring. A lot of times people equate sponsoring with a a membership fee type organization. Um, and there are some accrediting bodies that actually have that structure, but at the IAC, we are a nonprofit and we do not take uh, financial sponsorship from any, any society or any entity. So the sponsoring societies, their role at the IAC is they provide members to sit on our IAC board of directors. And these board of directors help us in many ways. First of all, they help us write the standards. 
that we in turn have for our facilities to become accredited. They also participate in our board meetings where accreditation applications are discussed and voted on. So they are the ones that have the final say on uh, accredited facilities. Uh, they also sit on a lot of special topic committees as part of their contribution to our organization. So for instance, we may have a hot topic like say um, AI or one right now is remote scanning. They're in the in the helical scanner space, we have a lot of uh, things going on with access, you know, you know, increasing access and some of that's remote scanning. So we say we would have a committee on that where different doctors from different disciplines will come together and discuss that and all the implications and help provide guidance for our facilities. So, and I guess it's worth mentioning that um, our sponsoring societies are very eclectic. We have representations from physicists. We have some technologists, uh, representatives from the ASRT. We also have cardiologists. We have orthopedists, and we have ENT representation. So it's a very uh, eclectic and well-rounded group that we have on the board. Well, well, that's excellent. And you know, representation by the AOFAS is making sure that the voices of uh, those practices where they are specialist practices, where they are offering outpatient advanced diagnostic modalities that their specific uh, needs, their specific structure around how they operate are taken into consideration when the standards are designed. Correct, because all different disciplines of medicine have different circumstances and concerns. I should also uh, mention that when we are electing board members to our, our board of directors, one of the things we do take great care in is looking at the diversity of the group. And that doesn't only mean uh, typical diversity. We also look at diversity of, you know, how many board members do we have from academic uh, programs. How many board members do we have from small practice? Because again, those two areas need to be represented, but they also have different concerns. And we want to make sure all of our facilities who are accredited are represented. That's great. And can you tell us a little bit about the specific uh, board member uh, who is representing AOFAS, maybe a little bit about her background so we know maybe what she's bringing to the table when she's uh, on the board. Sure. So Dr. Christine Seaworth is our first representative from the AOFAS. Um, she has her medical degree, uh, she studied in Texas, and she currently um, is in private practice in Tennessee and she specializes in orthopedic foot and ankle surgery at the university orthopedics at a practice university orthopedic surgeon and she mm -hmm. also is a professor at the University of Tennessee Medical Center at Knoxville so she's she's a great uh, representative because she mm -hmm. understands the challenges of private practice but she also understands the up and coming technology and practices at university. So, okay. and, so and a lot mm -hmm. of times it's just a fact that those two worlds have a hard time connecting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. 
uh, sounds like a great representative. And if we do have any listeners on today's podcast who are with, you know, any other orthopedic societies, like say the American Society for Surgery of the Hand or American um, Hip and Knee Society, um, what is the process? How often do you evaluate uh, new sponsoring societies? What is the process to be considered to be uh, one of those sponsoring societies? Sure. So first of all, growth in the orthopedic space is definitely a main focus at the IAC at this time. Uh, we we recognize the need for orthopedic facilities to have good representation and also have accreditation so that they can grow their practice. Um, if they wanted to become a sponsoring society, the first step would be to reach out to myself and then I could in turn reach out to uh, Mary Lally. She is the CEO of the IEC and she usually initiates that conversation with with a sponsoring society. And then usually there's a process where they would get we would get to know each other. And then the final process is that the board of directors votes on adding a society. Okay. And do you have any caps on how many sponsoring societies you can have at any given We do time? not at this at this time. So okay. we don't add we don't add a lot of societies frequently, but mm -hmm. like I said, we definitely are are looking a lot at the orthopedic space. So mm -hmm. that's definitely an area where we could use growth. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's good to know. Um, so I wanted to come back to, you had talked a little bit about um, orthopedic surgeons, maybe the gap when they're filling out their applications is they don't necessarily have the radiology background um, when they're writing their policies and procedures, sort of related to that. So when a facility is getting accredited, you're you're verifying that both the the technical staff that is actually taking the uh, the scans uh, is well qualified, as well as the interpreting staff or the uh, the medical professional that's actually reading the scan and and analyzing the information. So. Um, mo as you, most of our uh, customers, they will often either have a radiologist on staff or will work with a teleradiology um, company. But we often do get the question from orthopedic surgeons, um, would I be qualified to be the interpreter for my own scans? And so um, if you could describe I know there is a pathway in, in IAC, there are certain qualifications you have to meet. So could you go into a little bit of detail if an orthopedic surgeon is interested in qualifying as the interpreter, uh, what steps would they need to go through? Basically, what credentials would they have to have? Sure, so first of all, all interpreting physicians must have a state license for whatever state that the exam was performed in. So in, in the case of orthopedic surgeons, they're mostly likely going to perform it in the same state where they have their practice. So that's not generally an issue. Uh, the other thing they need is they need to follow what we call a pathway. And for orthopedic surgeons, we have two pathways. One pathway we refer to, and pathways are just our way of saying ways you qualify as a medical uh a medical staff member. So the first one would be the formal training uh, CT pathway. And in this, the 
physician would need to interpret at least 150 studies, 50 which the candidate is physically present or involved in the acquisition of the interpretation. So some of them could be read remotely, but they need to interpret at least 150 studies, 50 of which they're actually on site when the, the scan is performed. And then they have to attend 20 hours of CT classes or courses relevant to orthopedics. So in that they would recover, they would cover things like radiation safety and just general interpretation of CTs. Uh, the other thing they need to do after they get all these qualifications met is they need a letter of verification from the program director of the CT classes or courses. So some kind of certificate they need, you know, showing that they did the 20 hours of CT training. Uh, the other pathway, and this sometimes works, is what we call established practice. So that would mean that a physician, like say they worked in a large university hospital where they were involved inter in interpreting CTs, and then they came to a small practice, then that would also suffice if, as long as they have five years experience. And we call that the established practice. So virtually any physician can obtain the experience or the documentation in order to interpret if that's in fact what they would like to do. Okay, okay, so those are the pathways. Um, well, that's very helpful. Um, and uh, we're just about through my questions that I had. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add for um, maybe anyone who is considering getting advanced diagnostic imaging in their outpatient center or has already gotten it and is trying to determine uh, what is the best um, accrediting body for them? Um, any advice that you would give them? So um, I think my advice is to not only look at the requirements and maybe the fees, but also look at the uh, what you're getting in the accreditation one thing I'm very proud of at the IEC is we not only accredit facilities, but we support facilities. We help them understand the complicated uh, issues that come along with having a piece of radiation equipment. Uh, we also provide them venues for looking at quality insurance and quality improvements. Um, and then also, I personally think we're the accreditation body of choice simply because we give very good customer service um, and you want to make sure whoever you're working with to accredit especially if you're not you know, you're an orthopedic facility and you have a new person doing your accreditation or your staff is unfamiliar with accreditation you want to make sure you're using a program where the person involved is very hands-on uh, like me personally Vinti can tell you when i have a facility and they're struggling i'm like i'm always the first one to say let's get on a zoom call like let me get on a zoom with you so we can look at the application together see where you're stuck and then i try to predict other things that might be a challenge so that they can eliminate the frustration and the anxiety that comes along with looking at the application. Because you want them to be successful in their application. You Absolutely. want them to pass. And so you're doing everything along the way. 
to absolutely although i i'm always very um cognizant of the integrity of our accreditation and we want it to be something that carries a lot of integrity if you're going to go through the process you want something that really stands for quality but i view accreditation as a team sport you know i am not here to judge what you're doing i am here to support you and coach you through the process so that you can at the end understand a what you have done and what what you're we're really asking of you and b you're successful at accreditation so well wonderful if uh if anyone has listened to this and they have more questions about accreditation or or becoming a sponsoring society or or anything else what's the best way that they can reach you Yes, so um, my email is always a good way to reach me. It's ndavis at intersocietal.org. And uh, I also have a direct, uh, I have a direct line, but you probably want to use the 800 number just so you don't have to worry about fees. Um, it's 800-838-2110. And then my extension's 253. So um, I'm always accessible by phone or email. Um, I'm, I'm happy to discuss any of your questions or concerns. The other thing I like to point out is there is sometimes people, they don't want to call and ask questions because A, they don't want to look uninformed or B, they're concerned that I'm making notes like, oh, this, this facility didn't know this. You know, please, mm -hmm. I am always, always, always encouraging my facilities to ask. As soon as you mm -hmm. think you have a question, just call me and ask me because mm -hmm. I, what I don't want is people spending extraordinary amount of time trying to figure out what they're what's required of them mm -hmm. because usually mm -hmm. I can clear it up for you pretty fast wow well that that's great that's uh it's good to know that you're there as a resource um, I can say uh, many of our customers who do get accredited through IAC um, we've we've never had an issue where if they needed a question answered IAC wasn't available and ready to help and and you know try to make Try to make the the process as clear and uh, 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 smooth as possible. Because yeah. um, everybody's yeah. busy, right? And these mm -hmm. days, nobody has. You know, everybody's busy. They're doing more with less. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely. And perhaps um, I can even get a copy of your abstract uh, that you presented at AOFAS, and we can put um, put it up on our website. So anyone who's interested in seeing that research, uh, we sure. can have it up I'd there as a resource. For them. Okay. Um, we have, we did a synopsis and mm -hmm. uh, I think I have a digital copy, but if I don't, I can get it from uh, Mary Beth. She's our director of research. So I know she has it on file. Perfect. Well, for anyone who's listening, we will make that available on our website, which is www.curvebeamai.com. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. Uh, Nancy, this was Excellent to have you on. Um, you are a wealth of knowledge. Uh, yes, and uh, make sure you subscribe to Curfeam AI Cast on uh, Apple, Spotify, uh, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, thank you so much, and until next time. Thank you.